Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 23. It's been a while. We've been on a break while we introduced the 30 Years War, but we're back into the Korean War now and I'm more than ready to, well, just jump right in from where we left off last time. We actually left you guys on a bit of a cliffhanger in the last episode, episode 22 that is, as we brought our story up to the point that the North had invaded the situation seemed pretty grim, and the Republic of Korea army was in need of urgent assistance. Surely, we reckoned, 
President Truman would want to see American forces deployed pronto so that he could have the costly war which, remember, he wanted, and so that the houses would be moved to approve massive spending increases in this crusade against communist aggression. Surely all of this would come to pass, and surely Truman would get what he wanted. Yet, as we saw in episode 22, I know it was a while ago, but we did see that Truman was surprisingly hesitant to authorise any armed intervention at all. In this episode, we will assess why the President, supported by his Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, adopted this contradictory policy in light of what we know about his true intentions. In other words, to foster a long war of attrition in Korea. The answer is as cynical as it is striking, and it formed a critical pillar in Washington's policy line. Although, as we'll see, it also aroused suspicion and condemnation from some quarters. Without any further ado then, let's get into it. I will now take you into the evening of the 25th of June, 1950. The song of the week this week is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. You can get the latest episode of the Korean War one week earlier than regular listeners. You can also access the script and of course not have to listen to ads of any sort or shape or form while you do so. Monetary support is really appreciated guys because When Diplomacy Fails is pretty much my job now. Having, well I'm still looking for a job but it's not exactly going as well as I'd hoped. I'm counting down to when I apply to Cambridge. And in the meantime, I'm really just working on this podcast, bringing it out to as many people as I can and making it the best I can possibly make it. If this podcast is something you enjoy, if you're passionate about history, and of course, if you would like to access more of When Diplomacy Fails, then looking us up on Patreon could be the best thing for you. Head over to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails and see if we can find a membership to suit your needs. I really, really appreciate all the monetary support that you guys have been giving me so far, and I cannot wait to see what I can do with that by bringing When Diplomacy Fails far into the future and making it better than any of us ever had any real right to expect. Well, anyway, thanks for listening to this little small advertisement, and thank you as well for being a history friend in the first place. The best thing you can do, remember, is to tell someone about When Diplomacy Fails, and of course, that is free. Anyway, guys, thanks. And back to this song of the week. The song of the week this week is Alcoholic Blues. A song that many of us can, of course, relate to, but it is by Vernon Dalhart and was released in 1919. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 23 of the Korean War afterwards. Come in back again. Blue, I 
The date was the 25th of June. The place was Washington and the time was 7.45pm. President Truman, Dean Acheson and four of his top aides, the Secretary of Defence, Lewis Johnson, the Secretary of the Navy, of the Army, of the Air Force, the three Joint Chiefs of Staff and their Chairman, General Omar Bradley, were all gathered for a meeting at Blair House. Conspicuous in his absence was the Director of the CIA, a Rear Admiral Roscoe Hillencoder. Keep that man in mind, because Hillencoder will become important later on in this episode. Fresh in the minds of those that had assembled was the news that the United Nations had approved, only two hours before, a resolution condemning the North Korean invasion of the South. The vote had passed in the United Nations Security Council with nine people in favour, and one Yugoslavia abstaining. The Russians, as ever, were conspicuous in their absence, and if you've listened to previous episodes, you'll know our take on that. The northern attack was called a breach of the peace, and the resolution called for a ceasefire, a withdrawal to the 38th parallel, and requested that all members render every assistance to the UN and to refrain from giving assistance to the North Korean authorities. With the passage of the resolution, the United States, Britain and France, and the rest of its allies, were able to sit on the moral high ground, and the Soviet Union made not a peep in protest. Encouraging as the news from the United Nations had been, these 14 American VIPs meeting together in Blair House were here to talk more in depth about American interests and policy, rather than an exclusively cooperative policy with the United Nations members. We'll look at the process of the United Nations in the next episode, but for now it'll suffice to note that the resolution didn't call for any assistance to the Republic of Korea, and it didn't request the application of military force to Pyongyang either. Indeed, the United Nations resolution only declared that a breach of the peace had occurred, sort of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge resolution in a way then. But many believe that since the United States had been a vocal advocate of getting this resolution passed, that this strange way of condemning the North indicated an unwillingness on the part of the Americans to intervene. If the US resolution sponsored was puzzling in its mildness considering what Truman wanted, then the absence of the Soviets from the conversation was something of an enigma altogether. Jacob Malik, as we have seen, was in the area and frequently dined with those other delegates to the United Nations Security Council. He was neither away on business nor otherwise preoccupied, and yet his boycott continued despite the clear implications of it. If the Soviets had not chosen to boycott the resolution, then the United States would have been forced to engage in time-wasting debate, and then to propose the resolution to the General Assembly before presenting it to the Security Council again. This could easily have taken over two weeks. In short, the Soviets had great powers to significantly delay what the United States was trying to do, but under Stalin's orders, they did nothing. 
If this was allowed to go unchallenged, it would mean a third world war, Truman said in his memoirs a few years later. Just as similar incidents had brought on the Second World War, it was also clear to me that the foundations and the principles of the United Nations were at stake unless this unprovoked attack on Korea could be stopped. In his own memoirs, Acheson would write that We could not accept the conquest of this important area by a Soviet puppet. So this mood of defiance among the top levels of the administration was extended to General MacArthur as well, as we saw last time how the Supreme Commander in Japan was informed to prepare his troops to land in Korea if necessary. Yet, if you can remember back to episode 22, we also saw that Truman never attempted to impress this sense of urgency among his 14 colleagues at Blair House. The general consensus from that meeting in the evening of the 25th of June was that American boots would not be put on the Korean ground. Why, we asked, then, did Truman follow this contradictory policy? The answer, which you've been waiting for for over a month, can actually be explained by the foreign policy goals of the Truman administration. Since they desired a costly war in which American soldiers would be required in large numbers to turn the tide, and since this operation had to appear as an emergency, and one which could not be disputed by either the House of Representatives or the Senate, it was essential that the conflict in play at that point went a certain way. In the evening of the 25th of June 1950, and for the next few days until the information on the ground became clearer, Truman and his peers were in the situation where they didn't know what form the North Korean attack would take. If the assault was surging down the peninsula towards Pusan, then immediate action would have to be taken to prevent the fall, the total fall, of Syngman Rhee's regime. However, if the North Korean People's Army intended to push for Seoul and then hold back the Southern Army at the Han River, then such a conflict would not be nearly intense enough to wrest the necessary budget increases that the administration in Washington desired. Crucially, we have to remember that if the North merely held the Han River line, and if the South rallied and fought back, then the Chinese would also have no grounds to intervene. In such a situation, again, the kind of attrition necessary to justify massive spending increases wouldn't be possible. The intervention of the Chinese was a critical ingredient in the administration's plans, as was the image of American soldiers rushing to the defence of an otherwise doomed southern regime. Rhee's government was hardly doomed if it was able to hold its own along the Han River, which, in its own right, was a formidable defensive barrier under the proper circumstances. In addition, there was even less likelihood that the war would proceed as desired if American soldiers were permitted to intervene on behalf of the Republic of Korea Army and to help them hold back the North Korean People's Army along the Han River. What, then, did the administration actually want? Well, above all, they wanted to wait and see what policy the North Korean People's Army would follow before committing to anything. This involved assessing the progress of the North, the defences of the South, and the state of the defensive belt along the Han River. It appeared as though the South could defend itself along this river, so there was no need for the moment to send American troops. However, it was expected that if the North pushed at this line, they would be able to break through eventually. What was not known, though, was when this breakthrough would occur. If Washington intervened too early, the war would be settled in favour of the South before it had even truly begun. 
On the other hand, if the administration delayed for too long, then the feared tank columns could push the Republic of Korea into the sea before the American soldiery even had the chance to make the difference. The question of timing was therefore crucial, and this explains why the argument of non-intervention was peddled for the moment. In the case where a large time difference further muddied the waters, the fog of war did tend to obscure exactly how much progress had been made on either side. The key was to argue for intervention only when it became clear that the North had passed the Han River, since this meant that they intended to push further south and that the Korean Peninsula would be engulfed in a large-scale conflict after all. In addition to these considerations, the resolutions passed in the UN Security Council were perfect for preparing the ground for a subsequent escalation of commitment on the part of the Allied powers. But so long as information was thin on the ground for the moment, and a terrifying northern juggernaut was evidently not surging southwards, there could be little chance that the UN Security Council's nations would agree together for armed intervention. This armed intervention would only be justified when it appeared as though Rhee's regime was about to fall into the sea, and for the sake of the innocent Korean people caught up in this injustice, the belligerent northerners would have to be pushed back. Truman and Acheson appreciated the importance of getting the UN on side, and they worked hard for it too, since it would add further layers to the idea that America wasn't merely acting unilaterally against Pyongyang, but acting as part of a team. As a team player, Washington would be well placed to contribute the most arms and resources, as well as the supreme commander of the operation as it turned out, but all these investments could be justified in light of the approval given to the joint resolution, which called upon the assembled United Nations to act as one. Thus, thinking back to the meeting with the 14 VIPs of America in Blair House, it was determined that no armed action would be taken at this point. It was noted later on that many Republicans felt a moral responsibility to help South Korea, but even there, this feeling did not lead automatically to a belief that troops should be committed. The image of the unstoppable northern advance, combined with the support and confidence of the UN Security Council resolutions, would grant the American public and legislature the legitimacy that Truman's administration needed before it could proceed. Interestingly, although it was sidelined for the moment, the question of Taiwan repeatedly came up during the course of this Blair House meeting. The Defence Secretary even believed that the United States should use the conflict in Korea as an excuse to bring Taiwan into the American defensive sphere, where before it had been excluded. As Richard Thornton perceptively noted, Secretary Johnson's interjection here highlighted the fact that he had not been made fully aware of the full implications of NSC 68, after all, which called for the use of Taiwan and South Korea as defensive bases from which the American position in Asia could be held. Taiwan, unbeknownst to Johnston then, was always on the table, or at the very least, under it, and the fact that Johnson didn't know suggests that he was out of the loop from those that knew what was coming. Although there was a divergence of opinion at this Blair House meeting, it did demonstrate the reluctance to commit troops and the problems that the fog of war posed to American planning. Until it was clear how the North Korean People's Army intended to proceed in their invasion, it could not be clear how the American aid should be sent. Of course, one of the most important figures out of the loop in this case was also an individual who was far from this meeting on the 25th, General Douglas MacArthur, who had been told earlier that day to prepare for the deployment of troops, 
and who would now have to be held at arm's length and somehow stalled until the North Korean People's Army broke over the Han River. Otherwise, MacArthur's reinforcements could turn the tide and force the North to withdraw in defence of its positions, again negating the end goal of a large and lengthy war. Thus, by the time the meeting ended in Blair House at 11pm on the 25th of June, the order of the day was sit and wait. This, as it happened, was far from sufficient for the government's opposition, or the media, or MacArthur. Indeed, as per a pre-planned schedule, Atchison was due to appear before the Senate Appropriations Committee in the morning of the 26th of June in Washington. After insisting the conversations be off the record, Atchison then claimed that the reason why more had not been done for South Korea was because of intelligence failures, pointing to the director of the CIA, Roscoe Hillencoder. Hillencoder, if you'll recall, was one of the most notable absences from the Blair House meeting the night before. In fact, Truman and others had asked questions during the course of that meeting which Hillencoder could surely have answered. Of course, it was beginning to become apparent why exactly the director of the CIA hadn't been invited to that meeting. Had Hillencoder been present, he would likely have done more than simply answer their questions. He would have surely asked how, after the Department of State received and signed off the countless of warnings he had sent to them over the last few months, the likes of Atchison and the President could now find themselves in this position. It was the Department of State and Dean Atchison who were responsible for South Korea. MacArthur's troops had been evacuated and the Department of Defence had no soldiers there to look after. South Korea was a diplomatic and strategic interest and in the circumstances the diplomats were charged with its defence. Hill and Coder would thus be on firm ground when he asked why, if he had provided Atchison with the solid intel over their period of several months, did Atchison's department not then do its duty in South Korea? In what followed, Atchison tried to set in motion a stunning smear campaign against Hill and Coder. First, he telephoned the CIA director to tell him that he was scheduled to report before the committee that Atchison had just talked to later on that afternoon. Atchison then acted as though he had made a simple mistake when he simultaneously booked in Hill and Coder for a meeting with the President of the United States. What a coincidence! The meetings were scheduled for the exact same time. As Hill and Coder well knew, if he neglected to show up at the Senate Appropriations Committee and answer the outraged senators there who were prepared to crucify him on the altar of public opinion for not doing his job, then his absence would be taken as a sign of guilt. Yet, could Hill and Coder snub the president? In the event smelling a rat, Hill and Coder arranged to meet with the president and to delay the appearance before the committee for a full hour, by which time he and Truman had finished their conversation about where the intelligence failure regarding South Korea had come from. Hill and Coder, unaware as to the full extent of what was going on, perhaps, presented the reams of evidence he had to Truman, which absolved him from any guilt. The pages and pages of signed intelligence briefs from Atchison's department illustrated clear as day that Hill and Coder had done his job, and that, for some reason, the State Department had not. This was the evidence and the argument that Hill and Coder presented to the rapacious committee, and after debating his points of view, the evidence appeared far too plentiful to condemn the director's performance in the past. Although this information was not yet provided to the media, the Senate did find out. Senator Joseph McCarthy, 
denounced Acheson for his negligence, hinting at a more sinister reason for why he hadn't done his job in Korea, while one senator even quipped that, The Korean debacle reminds us that the same sellout to Stalin statesmen, who turned Russia loose, are still in the saddle. In a world where hearsay and charges of communist sympathies or even spying could mean career suicide, Acheson was taking on an immense risk by putting his reputation in the hands of the angry, Republican-dominated houses. But Acheson was following the script far too carefully to worry about accountability, and he rightly perceived that, once the war did take on a certain shape, most would forget about what had led to this point, and that attentions would be focused instead on the noble act of intervention. Still, even with the support of Truman, Acheson did take a great risk by playing the ball over to an innocent hillencoder. His risk seemed even more than costly when he received word from the front in Korea late that afternoon. By now it was dawn on the Korean battlefield on the 27th of June, but here in Washington on the 26th, information was finally seeping through. The news for Acheson wasn't good. The North Korean People's Army had evidently decided, for the moment at least, not to push for Pusan, and had instead diverted their attentions toward the seizure of Seoul. The capture of Seoul had of course been anticipated, but the question had always been how much resources the North would dedicate to this operation. Would the North treat Seoul as the Nazis had treated Paris in summer 1940, and push instead for the military victory by surging down south towards Pusan? For the moment this question seemed answered. The North had diverted a lot of resources to seize the southern capital, and in light of this their assault against first the Han River and then down the peninsula had stalled. In light of this delay and the absence of the Blitzkrieg, which Acheson had been hoping for, the decision was made to stall for time. Then, however, a further development was brought to light. The beleaguered American ambassador, John Mucho, had cabled Acheson early in the morning in South Korea on the 27th of June, so in other words the 26th of June in Washington, to say that panic had engulfed Rhee's regime and that the Republic of Korea planned to seek exile in Japan. Acheson was suddenly snapped into action. If Rhee abandoned the peninsula, then the later efforts to intervene in the name of his regime would have far less force. It was this imperative that Acheson did something. At 7.30pm on the evening of the 26th of June then, Acheson phoned President Truman. It was time for another meeting in Blair House to take place at once. At the beginning of the second Blair House meeting, it's worth sharing with you guys a bizarre event that took place. To kick the meeting off, General Omar Bradley read what was said to have been the latest message from Douglas MacArthur. It read, Piecemeal entry into action vicinity Seoul by South Korean 3rd and 5th Divisions has not succeeded in stopping the penetration, recognised as the enemy main effort for the past two days, with intent to seize the capital city of Seoul. Tanks entering suburbs of Seoul. Government transferred to South and communications with part of KMAG opened at Taegu. Ambassador and chief of KMAG remaining in city. South Korean units unable to resist determined northern offensive. Contributing factor is the exclusive enemy possession of tanks and fighter planes. South Korean casualties as an index to fighting have not shown adequate resistance capabilities or the will to fight, and our estimate is that a complete collapse is imminent. Sounds grand, you might think. MacArthur was here simply communicating how bad the situation was to Truman & Co., so what was wrong with that? Well, look a little closer, guys. 
Bear in mind that at this point in the timeline, it's the morning of the 27th of June in Korea. At that point, on the morning of the 27th of June, tanks were most certainly not in the suburbs of Seoul, and they wouldn't be for another 12 hours. In addition, the 3rd and 5th Divisions were nowhere near Seoul itself. Instead, it was the 1st Division above all, who, if you'll remember, we met in the previous episode when we briefly examined the story of its commander in the region, Pak Sun Yup. 3rd, KMAG, the Korean Military Advisory Group, had withdrawn from Seoul already and wasn't staying behind. Another thing we learned from Pak's story, as he watched his American advisors leave the scene in utter despair. Consider also the picture painted here of the southern Korean ability to resist, or the lack thereof. While the North had the advantage in armour and air support, the South did fight bravely in the places that it could mount a defence, and a defensive line even then was being prepared along the Han River. Had Pak managed to blow the bridge across the Imjin River, the South would have been in still less trouble. The situation was certainly grave, but it would be an exaggeration to claim that collapse was imminent, as MacArthur seemed to do. The conclusion come to, then, is that the memo read by Omar Bradley was a fake, if indeed he actually read it at all. Consider what Truman in particular would have to gain from this memo. As the hours passed and MacArthur became more insistent for the United States to approve his deployment of men along the River Han, it was important for posterity, for Truman to explain later on why this was not done, when it could surely have saved, or at least bolstered the southern Korean defence effort. With this cable, bursting with the kind of errors only one uninformed of the situation could draft, Truman's judgement for not committing to a hopeless hand defence, as MacArthur's fake memo here seemed to portray it, while MacArthur's urgings, coming from this fake memo, for just such a defence appeared rash. The cautious Truman preferred to consult the intel on the ground and proceed accordingly, while MacArthur would rather rush in in spite of the information he had just provided, which suggested that such a move would be a terrible idea. Of course, note that not only does this fake memo actually provide the ground for what Truman wanted to do, it also helps to build a picture, which MacArthur would contribute towards in the future, it has to be said, over the following months, that... The Supreme Commander, MacArthur, was rash, arrogant and defiant of both authority and the facts on the ground when in pursuit of the glory that he craved on the battlefield. Truman knew what he was doing. It should be added that the record of this cable appears only in Truman's memoirs, and the memo of this meeting does not mention it either. Again, sometimes the simplest explanation is the right one, and my history senses tell me that, for a wide variety of reasons, Truman cooked up the cable to save his own skin. Either we believe that the president lied, or he believed that someone with as much experience as MacArthur possessed this intelligence, which was wholly inaccurate, which again raises some questions, but that he chose to proceed with the defence of the Han River anyway. I'll leave it up to you guys to decide, but to me it seems most likely that this memo was a fake, and that it had the dual purpose of providing the narrative that Truman wanted, and also painting the picture of MacArthur, which would later become very useful. As for the rest of the second Blair House meeting, one of the most notable developments to come out of it was the commitment, not to the defence of South Korea, but to those of Taiwan. In the interest of the American defence in Asia, it was decreed that the 7th Fleet, making its way towards Japan, would be kept under the command of the regional commander, General MacArthur, and that it would be inserted between Taiwan and the mainland to prevent any fait accompli 
by the People's Republic of China. With South Korea under attack, it was imperative that the other bastions of American defence were held, even if it meant offending Mao Zedong. It was a genuine concern among many of those assembled at this Blair House meeting that South Korea was just the beginning and that another assault was imminent to take advantage of the confusion that Korea had caused. To take this further, the Secretary of Defence actually believed that Iran was the next target of the Soviets, while the expert on Soviet affairs believed that Taiwan was next on the list, and that the Soviets had helped the Chinese by organising just such a coup in Korea to keep the West distracted. Acheson declared his intentions to talk to the British and French about the next communist target. He likely already suspected that their answer would be somewhere in Western Europe, and perhaps even Germany. In actual fact, Stalin had contemplated for much of 1950 whether a Prague-style coup launched against Yugoslavia might produce such good results, but in light of the Korean situation, he decided to roll back these ambitions instead. Also of note at the meeting was the development of another resolution to be proposed to the United Nations Security Council the following afternoon on the 27th of June. This would contain the key phrase of recommending that United Nations members render such assistance as was needed to the Republic of Korea to repel the attack. Upon seeing this resolution, Truman interjected, That was right, we wanted everyone in on this, including Hong Kong. Decisions were also made to mobilise the reserves of the Army, Air Force and Navy, and two of those present, Secretary Frank Pace of the Army and Under Secretary James Webb, hurried to communicate the meeting's findings to MacArthur that night. By this point it was 10.30pm in Washington, and it was just approaching lunchtime in Tokyo, where MacArthur was stationed. MacArthur was indeed glad to hear that the 7th Fleet was under his command, and he was doubly pleased to learn that he was permitted to anchor it off Taiwan. Yet, in his requests to be able to bomb the North Korean People's Army below the 38th parallel, James Webb tried to put him off. The problem, as Webb presented it, was that the President hadn't put the strategy to Congress yet, and without its approval, MacArthur would be seriously criticised in Washington. Yet, MacArthur pushed Webb on the understandable argument that more important things were at stake here than the hurt feelings of some politicians. MacArthur insisted that the sight of American air and naval support would greatly encourage the morale of the Republic of Korea Army and compel them to fight along, in particular along the Han River line. Webb stalled at this reasoning, but he argued himself that the recent meeting in Blair House hadn't addressed such issues and instead had focused on generating a new resolution to be put to the UN Security Council. MacArthur stood his ground though, so Webb tried something else. MacArthur would be allowed to communicate the news of imminent American aid to the South Koreans, but only in the Korean language. This was a way of ensuring that the media outlets in Washington and the English language media outlets in Seoul would be slow to pick up the info. MacArthur agreed on the understanding that Truman was going to present a proposal which would permit US air and naval offensives against the North Korean People's Army below the 38th parallel anyway. Thus, in the late afternoon of Tuesday, the 27th of June, Korea time, a message was broadcast every 10 minutes for several hours, claiming that American support was en route and urging the people to crush the communist bandits. The Republic of Korean Army Military Command had been told, 
that the Americans hope we can hold the Han River for at least three days to allow them to deploy US ground forces from Japan to the front in Korea. This message massively bolstered the morale both of Syngman Rhee and of the Republic of Korea military, but it spelled the long-term doom of a great portion of their forces. Scrambling to move the defence of the Han River, the Republic of Korea units expended a great deal of energy and resources here on a position which was indefensible with the limited assets at their disposal. Of course, under the impression that they only had to hold the line for a short deal of time, this didn't matter to them all that much once American aid arrived. The question, of course, was would this aid arrive at all? The answer to MacArthur's immense consternation and to the despair of large portions of the Republic of Korean Army was no. The following morning in Washington, at 11.30am on the 27th of June, I know the time difference is confusing, but bear with me, Atchison and Truman faced several congressional leaders in a discussion about the Korean business. By this stage, the two statesmen already knew of the fall of Seoul, since the South Korean capital had fallen to the north at midnight on the 27th of June, and a cable had been sent to that effect, which reached Washington a full hour before the congressional leaders were met. Although they were certainly armed with this information, neither Truman nor Acheson thought about sharing it. This drip-feeding of information was likely orchestrated in order to present a camera picture to those present, and to guard against any risk that ground troops would now be requested to land in Korea during this meeting. The result of hiding this information, however temporarily, was that Truman was able to open this meeting on the morning of the 27th of June, with a statement that is often used by scholars to begin their analysis of the Korean War. In a speech which was released to the public after the meeting, Truman said that Communism has passed beyond the use of subversion to conquer independent nations and will now use armed invasion and war. In these circumstances, the occupation of Taiwan by communist forces would be a direct threat to the security of the Pacific area and to United States forces performing their lawful and necessary functions in that area. Truman noted that he had ordered the 7th Fleet to prevent any attack on Taiwan, and that he was calling upon the Chinese government on Taiwan to cease all air and sea operations against the mainland. The 7th Fleet will see that this is done. The future status of Taiwan, Truman said, must await the restoration of security in the Pacific, a peace settlement with Japan or consideration by the United Nations. Truman addressed his final remarks to the United Nations, who he knew would consider carefully the consequences of this latest act of aggression in Korea in defiance of the Charter of the United Nations. The gauntlet had evidently been thrown down to that fledgling institution, and its great first test had arrived. The onus was now on the United Nations Security Council to approve some kind of action, and Truman had also managed to restore a great deal of goodwill, which the perceived bumbling of Korea by the administration had recently lost. Both the House of Representatives and the Senate congratulated Truman's firm stance, signalling also their approval for the policy towards Taiwan, and they were evidently pleased about the fact that much had been done to include the United Nations in whatever operations might follow. What now had to be done, to ensure that such an appeal was successful, was to prepare the ground for the resolution which would be presented to the United Nations Security Council later that afternoon. With this in mind, the very representatives were gathered and briefed before talking 
to the Security Council. What was significant about this act wasn't the fact that it took place, but the man Truman chose to present the administration's case. Rather than Atchison or some other informed member of the administration, George Kennan, the expert on Soviet affairs, was selected to give the talk. Any confusion over the choice was explained by Kennan himself later on. Pondering the decision, Kennan later said that, I confidently and innocently assured them that we had no intention of doing more than to restore the status quo ante. In other words, Truman wanted someone to state publicly that the United States only wished to bring peace to the peninsula and push the North Korean People's Army back to the 38th parallel. Since this was exactly what George Kennan believed should be done, his convictions would make this plan all the more convincing. That way, neither Truman nor Atchison would have to state publicly that what they wanted was a limited war, a statement which events would later prove false. Kennan could give a believable speech, and the president could imply by choosing him to speak that he agreed wholeheartedly with his interpretation. The presence of yet another qualified individual telling the American allies what they wanted to hear would work wonders for the passage of the UN resolution. Had the truth actually been put forward, the outcome of the United Nations could well have been disastrous. If the President and others had explained their desire to carry a land war into Korea, opposition from several UN Security Council members would have been raised. For many US allies in Europe, keeping a watchful eye on the Iron Curtain was stressful enough without a massive contribution to an Asian theatre that they didn't, well, they didn't give a monkeys about. Congress would also oppose this revelation, since there was a strong current of opposition to the idea that troops should be sent to Korea at this point. Since the war was in its earliest, murkiest phase, Truman could be confident that with the passage of time, the more information that was revealed about the grave state of South Korea's defences, the more likely the Republicans would be to approve the increases that were needed. Once South Korea seemed in a hopeless position, Intervention would appear to be the only moral course, lest America would shirk its duties and the United Nations would echo the idle uselessness of the League of Nations, a charge its members were eerily sensitive to. On top of all of these considerations, revealing the extent of American plans would spook the North Korean People's Army into remaining back at Seoul or the Han River, further undermining the argument that soldiers would be needed from any of the Allies, since the Republic of Korean Army was evidently able to defend itself. In short, the activities of the United Nations Security Council was crucial, and the spotlight of history suddenly moved from the mysterious stately rooms of Blair House to the far larger, airier and more modern halls of the United Nations, who had once been called upon in 1945 to band together for the sake of world peace, and who were now being called upon again to make a very serious decision. The key line of the resolution called for members of the United Nations to furnish such assistance to the Republic of Korea as may be necessary to repel the armed attack and to restore international peace and security in the area. As of yet, there was no explicit recommendation to send American soldiers, but conveniently for Truman, it was accepted that this policy may change if the United Nations call on its members to send armed forces. If armed force was sent, it was the call of the United Nations Security Council and not the Americans. Truman's administration could thus take the glory in the leadership, but would at the same time manage to absolve themselves of much of the responsibility. As the afternoon of the 27th of June 1950 ticked by, it remained to be seen whether the nations seated on the United Nations Security Council 
would pave the way for the Korean War, or whether the UN resolution, and thus the plan of the Truman administration, would be stopped in its tracks. Next time, we'll see whether this pivotal resolution made it through after all, but until then, my name is Zach. You are a wonderful history friend, and you've been listening to episode 23 of the Korean War. Welcome back to the Korean War, guys. Thanks very much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.